So this morning is the uh, fifth of six talks and explorations of wise speech practice. And today and next time, uh, the focus is particularly on wise speech practice with difficult conditions, difficult circumstances. How do we bring our speech practice into our lives in more challenging circumstances where we get triggered, where we have uh, challenging relationships or situations? And how do we act skillfully in those kind of situations using speech? Not so easy. Uh, in a sense, the encouragement is to train in more protected environments, such as here, or such as at home, or perhaps in other ways with people uh, that you might practice with, and to develop capacities in those protected environments that we can then bring out in the uh, real-life situations that are, that are challenging. So that's the, that's the focus for, um, for today and, and next time. So what I'd like to do is to uh, explore that. And in a way, I know there are some people here who haven't been to all of the sessions. And how many people have, how many people is this your first or second time at one of the sessions? So I know that's true. So I will try in a way to both uh, make this understandable to people who haven't gone to all the sessions, but also have it be something that continues with what we've done. And as I've mentioned a number of times, uh, all of the previous four sessions have been recorded and are available on the web. And so you can go back and listen to those sessions because in a way, the intention for um, the sessions today and next time, as it were, when we increase the degree of difficulty, we do so having uh, established some foundations in the previous four weeks. That's really the idea that we've worked uh, initially with the ethical guidelines given uh, by the Buddha on one of the handouts to track one's speech to see whether it's uh, truthful, helpful, comes out of a warm heart, has good timing, appropriateness, and so forth. You know, this is a whole practice in itself. And we also have explored as a foundation, one that we'll develop further today, that capacity in the middle of action to be mindful, to be present, not very easy. You know, usually our attention is either mostly inner or mostly outer. And wise speech practice demands that we, I think, or really invites, maybe is another way to say it, invites uh, an awareness that has both inner attention and outer attention at the same time. And I always, the last few weeks, have invited us, as you listen and as I speak, keep some inner awareness. And again, that can be done in a light way simply by being aware of your body a little bit. Be aware of your hands on your knees. Have some inner presence as you also listen externally. Having that um, capacity 
not a, not a beginning capacity in a way. We have to develop first in meditation. For most of us, we first develop the inner capacity by learning meditation and so forth. But then this is really an intermediate capacity to then bring that out into action. Not easy. It has to be cultivated. We can practice it in large and small ways. And then um, the last two weeks, we've also brought in nonviolent communication. I didn't quite finish explaining the model last time. I want to finish that and then move for the rest of the time today and next time to focusing on how we practice with um, difficult situations. And I'll invite us in the next week, if there are any difficult speech situations, (laughs) may you only have wonderful, flowing, beautiful, communicative interchanges with loved ones near and far (laughs) in the next week. But on the slight chance that there's some challenging speech situations, that's where we can practice. Or even degree of difficulty three or four. You know, we we practice with the lower degrees of difficulties. We don't go right to degree of difficulty ten, my chronic blocked relationship with X. (laughs) So... That's the idea. So, a um, little briefly on nonviolent communication, and then want to talk um, some about the fourth part of the model. We've dealt with the first three aspects of the model. The, it really, I've interpreted nonviolent communication, which is a discipline developed by Marshall Rosenberg and quite a number of other people, probably in the last 30 years. I've interpreted that, um, influenced by my colleague Oren Sofer as a refinement of mindfulness. Much like the Buddha taught mindfulness, the Buddha didn't just didn't say be mindful, he said be mindful by looking at this or that or this. This area, look at the body, look at your thoughts, look at your emotions, here are some ways to do that skillfully. Here too, we want to bring attention to uh, particular aspects of our speech. Look here, look here, look here. And there are four aspects in particular that are looked at in the, in the model that Marshall Rosenberg has developed. I think it's a little bit arbitrary. We pr- I think we could look at other aspects of speech as well, just as I think we could look in our mindfulness at some other areas. There's a certain arbitrariness to some of these lists or just compilations of four or five or whatever. But on the other hand, what's being pointed to in the nonviolent communication model, very fundamental. So first, we were invited, and the invitation is to practice, to develop the capacity in any moments of speech to tend to be mindful of these four aspects, and particularly the first two. The first two are being aware of what is call, are called needs and also feelings. And needs, um, you can see on the, one of the handouts for today, needs are taken to be universal human values or... Another phrase that might be used is that which matters. And to connect with Buddhist practice, I think it's very much connected with intention or motivation. It's like, why am I here? What, what needs are being met by being here at this gathering? We've talked about that a few times. We might be here for community or to, for, for um, support for spiritual exploration uh, might be to receive energy or inspiration. 
And these could be said to be human, basic human needs or, or basic human values. And some of the ones are mentioned here, autonomy, celebration, integrity, interdependence, physical nurturance, and so forth, spiritual communion. And the nonviolent communication model is that needs uh, and basic values are what's most fundamental in human life. It's really in a similar way that the Buddha talked about intention and motivation as being so central. And so here it's postulated really that being aware of needs, and sometimes one has to interpret because sometimes we're doing things and we're hardly aware of the needs that we're trying to, to meet. But it's postulated that we, are, we pretty much do everything to meet, to meet some kind of needs. And it's thought that we, we, in some ways, can look at every activity and find an underlying need. Now, the way we um, think that we're going to meet some need may not always be very skillful. And we distinguish between needs and strategies. In other words, I may, uh, the example I gave uh, once or twice was I may drink very heavily that in some way is meeting a need, but maybe not very skillfully. It might meet a need for relaxation, or for connection, if I do it with others, or for dealing with my problem. I deal with it by denying that I have a problem, by obliterating my consciousness, right? That is in some way meeting a need. So I think that's very helpful. We can understand a lot of unskillful behavior as in some way based on meeting a need. And that can be very, very helpful with difficult speech situations because we can ask, particularly, you know, let's say I'm getting um, someone else's aggression or anger or frustration or withdrawal. We can always, and this is really um, to work empathically, I can tune in to the other person's need. Again, it's going to be somewhat of interpretation or guess. But that can be very, very helpful in difficult speech situations. It goes against our conditioning. Difficult speech situations, what's the conditioning? Basically, for me to get defensive. Right? And one way I get defensive is I shut down all empathic energy towards the other. So this goes against the conditioning. It really, again, is ultimately based in compassion. Again, another place where it links with the Buddhist practice. Can I be empathic towards the other in a difficult situation and actually say, what need is this person trying to meet, however skillfully or unskillfully? And so part of the mindfulness practice is to tune in to that quality of need for myself, for the other, and to do that as a practice. That's why I really gave these out over several weeks, because ideally it takes the practice of just focusing on one or two of these things for a week. I don't recommend doing everything at once. Just focus on attending to needs for one week. It gets a little more familiar. Not, you know, ultimately, we really need practice to, to make this um, alive for ourselves. The second area are feelings. And this is, is generally uh, could is, a, is um, synonymous with emotions. The, the point here is that it's very helpful to know what, the, what my feelings are in a given situation, and particularly, as we'll see, with difficult situations, 
the suggestion is that it's very, very skillful to actually report back, this is what I'm feeling in a difficult situation, rather than going to a kind of defensive, aggressive communication. Again, the conditioning in a difficult situation is to be defensive, and it also tends to be, um, there tends to be essentially blaming and judging. A lot of interpretation of a situation. Um, and what is particularly suggested in nonviolent communication is to go back to first person experience. To do that, one has to actually be able to be in touch with one's feeling and know what it is. This is again where it connects with our mindfulness practice. Because a fundamental intention of our mindfulness practice is to know what's happening in more direct experience and be able to know the difference between uh, my experience in my body or my emotions uh, from the interpretations I make or even the thoughts, the thoughts that go through. I need to be able to distinguish those aspects from interpretations. So I have uh, strong body sensations, my knee starts hurting, and I immediately go to, I should get a better cushion. Or I go to, oh my gosh, my knee injury is coming on again. And then we, that interpretation can lead me into 20 minutes of anxiety and fear. You know, or I, um, I have an emotion when I'm thinking about an interaction I had with someone yesterday. And let's suppose that I actually have a moment of anger and then I instantly go to, oh, that person was so dumb. Um, you know, that person was so dumb and I can understand really a tragic childhood. <laughs> and I don't know whether I should be friends with this person. And really, person's really messed up. Yeah. I mean. And um, there may be some validity in those interpretations, and it's not to say that we get rid of interpretations, but what we learn in mindfulness practice is the ability to distinguish between more direct experience and interpretation. This, this plays a key role in skillful speech practice, and in particularly in being in the nonviolent communication model, it's right at the heart of it. And so it might be to say, if I have a difficult situation, where um, I'm at a meeting, and an important business meeting, and three people come in one hour late. And um, instead of going instantly to the interpretations, I can see you're not team players. <laughs> Rather, the, one might start by just going to first-person experience, I felt frustrated, or I felt angry. Again, that, that doesn't make the situation totally easy, but it, it tends to not put someone on the defensive when one uh, talks about first-person experience. Rather, the, the interpretation will tend to increase defensiveness and tend to increase the basic model of typically of me right, you wrong. Very simplistic model. Almost surely not matching reality, <laughs> but it's where we go. 
right? It solves many problems. <laughs> yes, it's self-righteousness. Essentially, it's a simplification of reality for the sake of my personal well-being, as imagined, which actually doesn't work very well. It's a strategy, you know, and, it, and it's a conditioning. So here we're being encouraged to take responsibility for our experience. And last time we looked at how uh, the encouragement is actually to see that, um, and to be very careful with our language in not implying that someone else causes my difficult feelings. We're encouraged really to, to look with our mindfulness. How do I use language in a way which implies that someone else caused my frustration or my anger? You know, you know I'm so angry because you came in late or you did this. And we, we also invited looking for that particular use of the English language where it appears that one's using um, a feeling word but there's actually an interpretation like saying I feel manipulated or I feel patronized or I feel um, um, disrespected yeah but if all you you know if you're just saying I feel angry that's a short conversation I mean how, well let, let's get to that later I think I think that the the, um, it can open up in a lot of ways. And as we'll see, the encouragement is actually to, you, in, in a difficult situation, to use all four of the elements. So we looked at feelings. We also looked at observations, uh, a third element, which is to learn to see whether in describing a state of affairs, whether we use interpretive language or whether we use more neutral language. Again, a lot of difficult interactions People don't even agree about what happened. And they use highly interpretive language, which tends, again, to set up defensiveness. And so I mentioned last time my experience of working with a couple where we took an hour and a half to actually come to a mutually agreed upon, fairly neutral description of uh, the kind of difficult interaction which they have that up till that hour and a half point, each of them was using different language, which the other tended to feel and experience, or how should I say this, tended to interpret as um, judgmental and blaming, even in the very description of the situation, such as, um, you know, you were antagonistic or something like that. You know, that the language is quite, we want to somehow use neutral language. And, the, and we, last time we, we actually did a, went, went through a bunch of examples to, to, um, to see whether we could find um, more neutral examples from more uh, charged examples or interpretive examples. And the encouragement is to actually be very, very simple and use language in a way which is quite descriptive and almost could be taken as what a neutral observer would see if that person saw a film or a video or something like that. So we went through examples like, um, uh, let's see, my mother was unreasonably irritable with me when we spoke on the phone. Is that an observation? <laughs> or does that involve interpretation? Interpretation. Nancy cooked soup three times last month. That's an observation. Susan is gorgeous. <laughs> is that an observation? 
no, no. Harry, Henry was the first one who showed up for dinner last week. It was an observation. So the encouragement is to look at our language, and this, again, very, very crucial for difficult situations, that it's, it, when we use interpretive language to refer to a state of affairs, we'll tend to put the other person in defensive. It also makes it very hard to communicate because there's so much at stake. In, in, often in difficult interactions, there's almost like a war of interpretations going on. Right? And that, that's very, very hard to work out at that level because it's basically an, a, a, a higher level. It, it's quite a few removes from direct experience. You know, from my work with conflict, and this is actually what a lot of mediators do, one wants to bring back the situation to as close as possible to direct experience. The further one gets into um, interpretations and worldviews, it's very, very hard to mediate. That's why wars go on so, so long, because they're, they're, they're operating at the level of worldviews. And when it gets, it has to be brought down in, in a lot of conflict work. One wants to bring it down to direct experience and be very careful about the interpretations. You know, when one works in mediation, like with people, what was the direct experience? Often painful. But to actually, you know, Hor Thich Nhat Hanh, in his work in Vietnam and elsewhere, he says the role of the peacemaker is to bring the suffering of one side to the other. Suffering is at the level of direct experience. And that becomes very crucial with difficult speech situations. So the new, the new um, aspect of the model is the fourth, which is called requests. And this is really the, the uh, area in which there's action. And in a sense, the first uh, three have to do, in a way, with being mindful of what's happening and using language skillfully to report what's happening. So I report, here are my needs, here are my feelings, here is my <laughs> neutral observation of the situation. The request is more, what's my response to the situation? We could say, in, in a way, we could say it um, follows what's present and then what should be done. Or maybe, maybe better said, what would be a compassionate response to the situation? How might I respond to the situation? And in the nonviolent communication model, it's expressed in terms of how can I meet unmet needs? Again, we could use other language, perhaps. And you know, my preference would be that they didn't use words like needs, but that's, it's been done. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but how can I respond compassionately to the situation? And it's particularly about understanding that in a given situation, there are cer certain unmet needs for myself and for the other. And particularly in difficult interactions, what we become more skillful at is almost seeing or getting a sense of what are the unmet needs of a situation. Now, this is very similar to compassion practice. What is compassion about? It's about tuning in to what the other needs, in a way, or where they're suffering, or how one might respond compassionately, which could be framed in terms of meeting unmet needs. Someone has a need for understanding when there is um, some suffering. 
a compassionate person doesn't think this person has unmet needs for understanding, <laughs> but just responds intuitively and immediately. But we could understand it as, as intuitively meeting unmet needs. That's, that's another way of talking about compassion. And so this fourth uh, aspect of the model is called request. And again, a particular way of talking about uh, meeting unmet needs. And it's, again, it's as in the other three categories of the nonviolent communication model, it's particularly framed to avoid defensiveness in communication and increase the chances for compassionate connection. <coughs> That's the whole intention of this whole model. What will increase connection? In that sense, it's a pragmatic model. It's all, all of these, um, all of these uh, four categories are chosen and framed because they can help more compassionate communication and decrease defensiveness. So requests are a way of bringing the unmet need of a situation to consciousness in a way which doesn't uh, really cause confrontation. And it's a particular approach. And so um, it's about being very, very specific about how to meet a need. So in a given situation, if, um, um, for example, if my um, colleagues were an hour late for, uh, for work, what might be, uh, you know, and I, and I, if I was using this model, I would say, that I would try to be very clear about the observation. The observation was when you came in an hour after our, what I thought was our agreed starting time, that would be an observation. Is that an okay observation? Does that involve interpretation? What would be an interpretation that I might make that would... Yeah, you're late again. You're always late, right? You know, or you're not a team player, right? You don't care, you know, you know, you're late again, you don't care. That's going to set up defensiveness. So I could use language like, um, you know, when you came in this morning, an hour after what I thought was our starting time. It's, all, it's often helpful in practice not to be too much an authoritarian on it, but just, you know, to lay open the possibility of a misunderstanding, or leave open that possibility. That's, that's skillful. You so, see, there's a lot, of, a lot of consciousness necessary for being skillful in speech, right? It's like, and we have to really watch our tendency to be dogmatic, rigid, defensive, polarized, which happens occasionally in life. Has anyone had that happen in the last 24 hours? <laughs> okay. so, so I might use that for an observation. And I might, uh, if I was expressing a, a feeling, what might I say in that situation? You know, like I might say, when you came in what I, an hour after what I thought was our starting time, I felt what? I noticed that I feel alone. And I don't know at what level that is. Is that a primary level or is that like saying I feel manipulated? I oh. When someone's late, a lot of times I feel abandoned. But if I bring it down one level, it's alone. I felt, uh, I felt lonely, maybe? Yeah. Kind of left out to dry. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we want to try to um, bring that, bring that down to, um, 
the emotions that are there. Probably the more typical ones for a situation might be, um, I felt frustrated or I felt angry. You know, for I'm not saying that's what your experience is, but because it's that that's an interesting example because it could trigger all sorts of things. Right? All sorts of things can be there. But I'm I'm going to be simple with the example for now. Maybe we can come back to that one. There was an investigation of what was underneath the anger. Yeah. That's, that's right. There, there could be, um, um, beneath the anger, there could be all sorts of things that connect psychologically. I might have, you know, I, I might, uh, um, there might be a pattern of feeling disconnected or whatever, or alone or so forth. Um, I don't want to go quite to that level of complexity right now, but just to keep it a little simpler, recognizing that that that's real, you know, that when we actually look more deeply, there can be a lot, a lot in some of these examples. They can go um, quite into very primal patterns and, and deep, you know, old stuff, basically. So, um, so I might say something like, I felt frustrated, you know, and, I, and then I might refer to a need. And what would be a way, what might be a sample need if I feel frustrated? Might, what might be a need that I have? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I might say, I might say, I, I felt um, frustrated because um, um, I wanted to be efficient with our time and we couldn't cover certain materials without you. Mm-hmm. I might say something like that. that. And the need would be that for efficiency or effectiveness in the meeting. And then I might make a request. And this is where we're getting to our last area. And the request is being urged is to be quite specific. It's to be um, very specific about how to, re- to, to meet the need. So it's not to say, would you come on time for the rest of your lives? <laughs> that wouldn't be a specific request. Uh, but it's actually to, be, uh, a, to have the request to, n- to not, again, not have so much interpretation in, but really point very directly to something that could be uh, specific and doable for the person. So what might be, how might I make a request in this example, please? Well, that we could use, confirm our meet, that we meet in time, and that if you're going to be any more than five minutes late, we'll let you know. Yeah. Would you be willing um, for future meetings to communicate with us if you're going to be late? Right. That, that's a pretty specific request. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you can see how, um, that act, and, and the thing about request is that in this model, they're distinguished from demands. And this is where we get into, sometimes into questions of power and authority. And, you know, and it gets more complex. But on the simplest level, if we imagine two um, equals, as it were, and you know, let's say the meeting was, was one of people who were at the same level of authority or power, that I might make that requ- request something like that. Would you be willing to do that? Rather than going into how how might I be unskillful with that situation, right? Different let me count. Let me count the ways. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was going to say, you know, if it happens again, then I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to. If this happens again, I'm I'm leaving. That would be a kind of demand. So, in the nonviolent communication model, there's a distinction between a request and a demand. And the test is, if, and basically it leaves open the possibility that the person can say no, 
and one would be okay. You might decide to leave the group. You might act on it, but you're not... The idea here is that when there's a demand made, if there's, a, there's basically a kind of a threat or there's a power move and so forth. And of course, we get when we get into actual asymmetrical relationships, parent-child or boss and worker, it gets trickier. But, but still, this could, could be used in those settings. So let me just do a few... Um, well, let me read, read an example of this, and then I'll give a few examples uh, for us to try. This is from Marshall Rosenberg's work on nonviolent communication, which is in the bookstore, as well as some other books. And, and just to say also, in my own book at the back of the room, I have uh, several sections on uh, wise speech practice, including with uh, difficult situations. There's some material in that book. So this is uh, from a real-life example where Marshall Rosenberg was working. He says, I was once invited to work with some high school students who suffered a long litany of grievances against their principal. So here we have actually an asymmetrical power relationship where they used a request. The students had a long litany of grievances against their principal. These were primarily African-American students. They regarded their principal as a racist and searched for ways to get even with him. So kind of a tense situation. A minister who worked closely with the young people became deeply concerned over the prospect of violence. Out of respect for the minister, the students agreed to meet with me. They didn't really want to meet with Marshall Rosenberg, but they agreed because of the minister. They began by describing what they saw as discrimination on the part of the principal. After listening to several of their charges, I suggested that they proceed by clarifying what they wanted from the principal. In other words, what are, what are requests? And you'll see how uh, they had a hard time getting there. What good would that do? scoffed one student in disgust. We already wanted him to tell us what we wanted. We already went to him to tell us what we wanted. His answer was, get out of here. I don't need you people telling me what to do. Right? So, tense. I asked the students what they had requested of the principal. They recalled saying to him that they didn't want him telling them how to wear their hair. I suggested that they might have received a more cooperative response if they expressed what they did, if they had expressed what they did, rather than what they did not want. They had then informed the principal that they wanted to be treated with fairness, at which she had been defensive, vociferously denying ever having been unfair. So you see some of what we've been talking about coming up here. I ventured to guess that the principal would have responded more favorably if they had asked for specific actions rather than vague behavior like fair treatment. Working together, we found ways to express their request in, in positive action language. At the end of the meeting, the students had clarified 38 actions they wanted the principal to take, <laughs> including, here are some examples, including, we'd like you to agree to black student representation on decisions made about dress code. Very specific. And we'd like you to refer to us as black students and not you people. Very specific, you see. The following day, the students presented their request to the principal using the positive action language we had practiced. That evening, I received an elated phone call from them. Their principal had agreed to all 38 requests. Wow. <laughs> you know, so... When, when they were framed in terms of, you're bad, yeah. defensiveness happened. And of course, again, using these tools is no guarantee 
that everything will turn out wonderfully and beautifully. Uh, but the possibilities are very much enhanced. So let me, um, let me just do a few more examples and tell me whether these are requests or not. And if they're not requests, how to formulate them as requests, okay? I want you to understand me. Is that a request? In this sense, is it clear, doable? You're not very, how might you make that more specific? I want you to understand me. What might be an example of uh, a specific example of how you of a request, didn't yeah. feel understood? Of something that would maybe um, the need is to, as it were, feel understood. What might be a request that would actually uh, be a uh, more skillful way of expressing that? Yeah. I, I want you to ask me how I'm feeling. Yeah. I want you to, from time to time, ask me how I'm feeling, or what's, or it might be, I would like you to um, read this piece of writing that I did, right? That might be a way, you know, we're very specific. I, I wrote um, some reflections, one page, I'd like you to read, would, would you be willing to read that, right? Another example you can, th anyone think of, please? Yeah, would you be willing to show that you've understood? Would you be able, yeah, maybe you said it actually better than I was going to say it. Would you be willing just to um, repeat in your own words your understanding of what I just said? That might be a way of doing that as well. Please. Could you give me five minutes to describe what is going on for me right now? Yeah, it might be. Could, would you be willing just to take a few minutes to express what you understand of me. It might, in, the, in certain contexts, that might be very skillful. You know. So, um, I'd like you to tell me one thing that I did this month that you value or appreciate. <laughs> Is that a request? Yeah, I, that's a legit, uh, specific and doable, right? Those are, and, and, yeah, so that's a legitimate request. Yeah, a lot of this is a lot of this is going to uh, well, the way it actually comes across is going to depend a lot on tone of voice. <laughs> so I could say this in a way and, and context also. You know, there'd be context where this would be, this could be, come with baggage, right? <laughs> right for sure. Okay. Um, would you be willing to be to open up more with me? Is that a request? It's not very specific. Not very specific, right? Okay, how might it be more specific? Kind of similar to the first example. Yeah, what you're think? What you're? Th could you, would you be willing right now to tell me? Uh, the time is is going to be important to say to not have it be open ended, but be very specific about time. So this is you know this is we're kind of getting our muscles um, working on this. I'd like you to be honest with me. No. You see, and do you know that, do you have the resonance of all the times when you've said something like this to someone else? <laughs> right. How about, um, I'd like you to complete the report and submit it no later than 5 p.m. this Friday. <laughs> Pretty clear, person can say no. You know, that's, um, 
I'd like you to show respect. Is that a request or is that a demand? Well, it could be a demand, uh, but we're, it could be a request as well. I'd like for you, or would you be, let's, let's frame it, would you be willing to? Yeah, yeah, would you be willing to do this by this time? And the person can say, you know, I'm just getting a cold, I don't feel very good, how about the following week? That might, you know, could be negotiated. Um, I'd like you to show respect for my personal privacy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this could be a teenager, right? <laughs> yeah, would you be willing to knock first? <laughs> right, knock first on the door might be something else. Or would you be willing to um, not send all my emails to all your friends? <laughs> so you get the idea, right? So. Let me see in terms of the time. We've, we've, um... Just on one quick question. So on the one about, you know, I want this report by Friday, um, is, is it just the simple difference in words between are you willing to get the report in by Friday versus I need the report by Friday? That, that's right. It's, um, rem remember the distinction between request and demand? And uh, I want it in by Friday is a demand. And uh, again, we get into power and authority issues here, but um, would you be willing to is a request. And you know, there's been, I think, a fair amount of research showing that essentially authoritarian management in organizations and workplaces often is not very skillful because it really takes away, in a sense, the autonomy of the person. That's actually, especially for this society right now, a lot of people are experimenting with much less authoritarian ways of ha even having hierarchy, but less authoritarian. And this kind of language would help. So I think it's even in asymmetrical situations, certainly raising children, a lot of this would be quite skillful, you know, rather than even though it's an asymmetrical relationship, one can use this kind of language. And, and really, the, the main thing is to really distinguish, know that one, how one is using language. Okay, so I want to do one exercise. I want to, if I can, can we reserve this maybe for a little discussion time? I want to do one exercise, okay? And I think I'll have this because of time. I'll just have us do this um, each by ourselves. So I'd like you to um, think of a difficult situation involving speech that involves you. <laughs> degree of difficulty on a scale of 10, degree of difficulty 6 or 7, okay. not 10. And if you feel like you um, want to go lower, that's okay. But um, for the time being, don't go higher. Degree of difficulty 6 or 7, however you interpret that. Think of a speech situation that's difficult for you could be family or work or, and, and um, the idea of it is something that is somewhat ongoing, not, a one, not necessarily a one-time thing. But if you, if you want to focus on a one-time experience, that's okay. But generally something where there's kind of an ongoing, challenging relationship. So reflect on that situation. Bring to mind, if you want to close your eyes, bring to mind 
a um, situation, a memory or two in which there was an interaction. And I'd like you to now to either use an actual situation from the past that might come up in a similar way again, or just imagine some situation with this person. And put yourself in that situation. Where there's some difficulty. I'd like you, and if you, if you want to actually use a piece of paper, it can be helpful, but not necessary. Staying with your inner experience of the situation, I'd like you to get a sense of what are my feelings and needs. We'll go through a few steps now. In this situation, what are my feelings? What are my underlying needs or core values? And it can be helpful just to think back to a particular challenging actual situation if you're having a hard time imagining one, go back to an actual situation as if you were, it was going to happen again. Or as just actually just to go back to that situation. What were my feelings? What were my needs? And now, also, what's your sense of the feelings and needs of the other person? Remembering to go with needs to the level of uh, more universal needs and distinguishing the need from strategy. What are my feelings and needs? What are the other's feelings and needs? And then if I had to describe what was difficult for me or the difficulty of the situation to the other person, how might I use neutral observation language to do that? How would I frame it like when you did this or said this, something like that? Where, how would I frame it in a way that doesn't involve interpretation. <coughs> and that ideally, the other person might also um, see as, as describing the situation. 
sort of the, what was describing what was kind of the catalyst for the difficulties. And then lastly, in this situation, coming out of the difficulty, is there a request that you might make of the other person? You know the context. So is there a skillfully phrased request that you might make? Remembering that the request is a way to meet your own need. We often have resistance to actually meeting our own needs. So is there a way that you could make a request that would help to meet your need? Likely it would be, this might be a little bit new territory. What would you say? Now just to finish up, just reflect about all these different pieces and is there something that you may have learned or is there a way that you've seen the situation a little differently from using these tools? Just to reflect for yourself on that. was that? Did anyone resolve a 10-year-old difficult relationship in <laughs> five minutes? <laughs> so we have some time, please, for questions or comments. And first, maybe, um, maybe first just like to hear how that was for anyone and whether any, any observations or questions. And Debbie, did you have one? Yeah. Yeah, I had, you know, you can just go through the whole exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Then you can start out again. I'm feeling angry. (laughs) 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 So I think that it seems to me that that's a real possibility, though. Yeah. Yeah. There's no um, there's no guarantee that these methods will um, help you meet your needs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I sometimes I think I've said this before here, but I like to think sometimes, and this is very important for difficult speech situations 
that in, let's say, just the simplest model, like that of a dyad, two people, difficult interaction, there are um, three areas of practice, or there are really three areas where something can happen. I can try to, um, you know, I, actually, I, I, I would take that back. I would say there, in, in any given dyad, there are five potential domains of spiritual practice using speech. I can work in a skillful way with what comes up inside me, with my inner experience, maybe in meditation or in other ways. You know, frustration, anger, you know, long-standing needs not met, etc. I can deal with that. That's one form of practice. I can also try to be skillful with my speech in a given situation. That, those are two. The other person can equally well do those two forms of practice. And then the fifth form would be our cooperative practice together. The ideal situation, the ideal speech partner, one can pract- there's practice going on in all five ways. The reality is, in some situations, at best, I'm doing my two forms of practice and three forms are not happening. Right? That's a reality sometimes. The success of a given situation is going to depend on a lot of factors, including the internal conditions of the other, and some of the aspects of the relationship. You know, it could be larger social parameters and so forth. So, so yeah, so this, is, this isn't like a rote formula to be applied to every situation, but these are in general, in certain situations, these working in this way can be very um, helpful. And then maybe last thing to say is the, it's very important to, to have that sense of the feelings and needs of the other. That's going to really help you be skillful with your request. You know, to, and that's, we would call that empathy and maybe compassion. To, for me to tune in to the other person. And I can imagine a lot of situations where if I'm really empathic, you know, if I'm, let's say, I'm... Um, I'm um, I don't know. Do you want to give your example? Sure. My yeah. example, I was thinking of my son, and he's, he's 14, and asking him a question, and him saying, that's a stupid question. And, I, and my saying to him, why is that a stupid question? Or, or would, you mind, you know, would you mind telling me what about that question is stupid? Why that felt sad. And him saying, no, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. So, I mean, so what do you want me to focus on? Well, the um, little bit, the missing piece in the exercise was that it can often be more helpful. Yeah, there, uh, maybe this was a little misleading, maybe even by the way I gave it, but we don't make the request out of the blue. We would actually first try to establish empathy, particularly in difficult situations. We'd want to establish that you, in a sense, could connect with the other. This is where the observation, feeling, and need statement comes in. So you'd actually, so this again, maybe I can refine what I did, because it would be better not simply to make a request, but to say, when you did this, I felt this. And you might say, I'm imagining that when I asked you, um, imagine, what, say it again. It, 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 it made you feel like your privacy 
was being invaded or like you didn't have independence or something like that that you'd be but the original oh he just said that's stupid that's a yeah, stupid question that's a stupid question and and so yeah what's being empathic you know you might say the observation would be you said that's a stupid i'm imagining that when you said that's a stupid question that you were feeling um uncomfortable because you um, wanted more autonomy or something like that. And so you would want to check that out first. You, don't, you would want to make the request after you had checked out that other, uh, those other things and establish connection that if you make the request without that, it won't necessarily work. Right. So that's... Yeah. 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 Again, it's all going to come down to being skillful in the context, and and but but often that would be very very helpful. If if that comment that was a stupid question, it's indicating a sense of disconnection at that moment. Then what you'd want to do would be to establish more connection through the empathic comments about his feelings and needs. I. You know, I, I, when you said that, I imagine you were feeling pretty irritated because you felt like your sense of independence and or autonomy wasn't being recognized. You know, and then the request might be, um, you know, I could imagine that situation making having the request be not to tell me why you think it's stupid, but to say. You know, and if, if, he, if he says, yeah, yeah, he might say it in his own words, right? He might say, oh, um, you've been going to Spirit Rock too much. <laughs> but he might, he, might say, he might say more or less, yeah, I do. I, do. I, you know, I want my own, you know, I feel like you're being a mom or something, right? And then, and then you might see your request might be rather different. It might, it might not be because you actually know now the source of him saying it's stupid, right? You understand that. So you might say, would you be willing to tell me whenever you feel like I'm um, acting in a way that you don't feel like you have autonomy? That might be, see, that, that way uh, you're reestablishing connection. You're do, doing, you're, see, ultimately the request wants to be not just meet your need, but also as much as possible meet his needs, right? So it's, there's a skill in making requests, right? So thanks for your question. It really clarified uh, that we're really talking about all four of these elements, not just the request. Yeah, thank you. And now we get a report next week. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, please. Uh, just that uh, a lot of these uh, set up situations, um, there are preface uh, by um, uh, common concern. Meaning it's important that we have communication. And do you agree with that? There should be a no-brainer in there. That's why, not that I would verbalize that, but that <laughs> if that is established, then it gives us a place from where to, to work from. Okay, so I'm going to ask you another question, and please give me the same question. But, but in the moment, yes. I mean, those are good points. Your name again was? William. William. In the moment, if he's just said, that's a stupid question. Well, then you give Usually stupid means that it's a common... You probably want to go more towards empathy around feelings and needs rather than establishing agreed-upon communication bases at that moment. Uh, no. Uh, just, just do you know what I mean? I, I do. 
I, I guess it's saying that when a person's in a state of reactivity, yes. it's better to respond in a way which acknowledges that. Or just say thank you and, and walk away. I don't know. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay. We're, there, there may be different parental strategies <laughs> here, but I, I'll stick just with the nonviolent communication model, what's being, you know, without taking the bigger picture of how that applies to teenagers. <laughs> which, um, but the, the idea here, I think this is also very much related to uh, Buddhist-inspired wise speech, is it's that essentially when there's reactivity, as there is when someone says, that's stupid, or a lot of the situations we could imagine, that um, it can be very helpful to, in a sense, recognize that because if the person is in a reactive place, they're not in a place necessarily to make cognitive agreements. And so it can be, uh, you know, I mean, some people could, and maybe there, if there were previous agreements, maybe that would help. But the, the um, starting point for this work is really um, meeting reactivity with empathy and compassion and having that be a starting point and, you know, if, if you know a person well enough so that you know that that person, so this, again, isn't a rote formula to apply. If you know that a person made a reactive statement and the next moment is not really reactive and could hear that, then that's different, you know. But for a lot of people, they wouldn't be able to hear something on that level. And it's really, so I guess we're really talking about discriminating wisdom in the moment of what can the person hear. Right? Does that make sense? Uh, kind of, except that I work in hospitals, so that you have to uh, meet strangers at a very moment that you're walking in the room, yeah. assess where they're coming from, oh, yeah. compassion, and then give a ground rule, a, a ground understanding that that you empathize with what they must be feeling, being in a strange place and whatever, and then it gives uh, automatically, unless there are major drugs or or um, or have something else going on. Anyway, I use it a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think maybe we're, we're getting at, we're at the end point. But I think it, it brings up an interesting point. Like here, I'm urging us to look at this in the most basic of situations, which is more to, to look at this especially in terms of an interpersonal relationship between equals, more or less. Um, or, or I think situations like you're describing, but but to know that a lot of these specific situations, particular professional contexts, are going to bring in particular ambiguities or aspects of it. I think the model is still applicable, but there'll be those complexities. Like if you're in a situation where you have three minutes to do something, it's going to look a little different than if you can have an hour-long conversation. Right? And, you'll, and so certain professional contexts or certain interpersonal contexts will look a little different. But what I hear you saying is that the principles um, you try to apply more or less the same principles. Well, yes, but we, we also only have maybe two minutes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's going to, that's, that's a system, you know, and that, that has certain constraints, right? But two minutes is a constraint. Well, I guess it's my timeline. <laughs> that's what I meant. <laughs> um, and so you'd have to see, you know, I think there are two levels at least. One is um, how within the constraints, temporal constraints, there could be other constraints of the situation, can you use this as skillfully as possible? 
And then there might be situations where you have to step back and look, are there ways to shift the system as a whole that would enhance uh, certain things more? You know? And that, that, that's a legitimate question to ask in certain situations, like medical, perhaps others. You know, like if, there's, if, if the whole system is set, set up so that certain kinds of empathy are harder, I'm not saying that's the way with yours, but you know, if, there, if certain kinds of communication just don't occur, then, then we might, um, you know, like let's say if um, a particular organization does all of their decision-making by email, right? Let's say, hypothetical example, but people do it. All of their decision-making by email, that may make certain uh, tuning into people's emotion much harder. And so it might be that it might be more skillful for that organization to have at least some face-to-face meetings. That's what I meant by one could look at this model and apply it and say to a whole system and say, well, it may be good to modify it in some ways. So we're, we're, we're at time, so you didn't get your question asked. It's just a real question. Yeah. Would you be willing to, like you're asking, yeah. you want to, you're having this discussion, Yeah. whatever, is you, using you, would you be willing to, or I would appreciate, I mean, that's using the I yeah. phrase, is, uh, is there, could you use them equally, or is there a difference? You just want to have it be, you want to just have it be clear that it's a request rather than a demand. So again, a lot of it's in like the tone. It could be. And it's going to be in the tone of voice. And so uh, the language, would you be willing, is very obvious it's a request. So that can often be skillful if there's ambiguity. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, So challenging, isn't it? So your assignment, would you be willing? (laughs) How many of you would be willing in the next week to give special attention to your challenging speech situations. Okay. And take notes, come back with reports. Uh, next week what I plan to do is just speak rather briefly, and then I think it's really educative to hear a lot of examples from other, how many people like that. So I, I do. But, um, so my um, suggestion is to explore your speech practice in general with a special focus on challenging situations, try these out. Think of this as an experiment. Um, don't necessarily, my suggestion is not necessarily to use this with a degree of difficulty 10 immediately. Practice with lower degrees of difficulty in safe situations. You can even find someone else in the group and role play. You know, role playing is great. We do that when I have more time. I like to do role plays for, for all this stuff. It's really fascinating. Okay, so let's just sit to close. And let your whatever seem most helpful from the morning and any intentions coming out of the morning be there. Intentions for the next week. And we remember as we, as we close that we do this practice and this exploration not just for ourselves but also for others. And may the fruits of our time together be offered through our lives and through our um, 
presence here be offered out into the world for the benefit and healing and transformation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.